I would say over a total of about 18 years, it had become practice to go every Sunday. You went along anyway, and there would be Sundays which would be too rough for which to go in, but you managed to get into the water, in for the whole lot of the bars. Ah, uh, we had about seven or eight regulars after 11 o'clock mass on Sunday. Well, this story was told shortly after World War Two about two young boys who used to frequent the party foot just before the war. I think the name was Lee. Somewhere on the desert, there's a British post in the desert, two young men, very raggedly dressed, approached the post and were being interrogated as to their identity. In the process of the interrogation, the young lieutenant came along. This young lieutenant was an Irish bank official and was prominent with Wanderers Rugby Football Club. Suddenly he exclaimed, Why, these are the two Lee brats who were always driving off the high ball of the party foot. In these circumstances they were identified. According to the minutes, in the year 1880, some gentlemen met on the rocks in order to found the Sandy Cove Bathing Association because they said that at that time it was easy enough to get into the water but it was extremely difficult to get out. It was quite dangerous. So they had the help of an engineer, one of their members, and he supervised the making of steps in the granite, railings were put in and so on. I, went, I once met an old man there who told me that he was told by another one that swimming was all during the 19th century. It was very common there. And this older man had told my old friend that he remembers witnessing the ships moving across the bay with troops for the Crimea from the port of Dublin, the troop ships. In the year 1794, a British fleet under Lord Hood directed an intensive cannonade against a small circular tower at Mortella Point in Corsica. But to the astonishment of the attackers, the continuous and accurate fire of their guns made little impression on the minute fort. The British government of the time was so impressed by the way in which the fort had stood up to naval bombardment that they decided to erect towers of similar construction along the British and Irish coasts as a defence against the threatened invasion by Napoleon. These forts, known to us as Martello Towers, are circular buildings about 40 feet high with immensely thick walls, and they were built in great numbers towards the end of the 18th and during the early years of the 19th century. To defend the approaches to Dublin, the authorities about the year 1804 built one at Sandy Cove Point. Oliver St. John Gogarty, the poet and wit, was a very frequent swimmer at the Forty Foot and saved men from drowning. In the opening section of Joyce's Ulysses, we read that the dwellers in the Martello Tower made their way down to the bathing place 
and that Stephen Dedalus stood on the rocks, his mind full of his own peculiar thoughts, while he watched Malachy Mulligan, who is identified with Gogarty, disporting himself in the water. Buck Mulligan frowned at the lather on his razor blade. He hopped down from his perch and began to search his trouser pockets hastily. Scotter! he cried thickly. He came over to the gun rest and, thrusting a hand into Stephen's upper pocket, said, Lend us a loan of your nose rag to wipe my razor. Stephen suffered him to pull out and hold up on show, by its corner, a dirty, crumpled handkerchief. Buck Mulligan wiped the razor blade neatly. Then, gazing over the handkerchief, he said, The bard's nose rag, a new art colour for our Irish poets, snot green. You can almost taste it, can't you? He mounted to the parapet again and gazed out over Dublin Bay, his fair, oak-pale hair stirring slightly. God, isn't the sea what algae calls it? A grey, sweet mother. On the way back, uh, the strain became too much for Arthur Griffith, and Gogarty had to steer him into the rocks just beyond the 40-foot and help him out to the rocks there. But he was very diffident about doing it because Griffith was a person who was a man of iron and he would never admit himself beaten in anything at all. And Gogarty had to exercise a great deal of tact before he took um, Griffith's arm. Gogarty also told me how he persuaded Yeats to come down for a swim to the 40-foot. And when they were sitting in the car, uh, Yeats, after a good deal of meditation, said, uh, I cannot go in with you, Oliver because I have forgotten my towel. That's all right, said Gogarty. I have two towels. And just as they got nearer to Dunleary, Yeats again spoke and said, I cannot go in to swim with you, Gogarty, because I have forgotten my bathing costume. That's all right, said Gogarty. I brought two bathing costumes. They arrived at the forty-foot, and Yeats jumped into the water with a tremendous splash, and Gogarty called out to him, I hope to goodness you haven't forgotten how to swim. The sea sound of the sea gussed, seaweed gussed, deep down, down swelling, fine shelling, sea of Dublin and Dublin's own. We were sitting round, enjoying ourselves and lying in the sun, until about five o'clock, when we said, we've borne the heat of the day, we'll go up to the paddles. And Anu said, dear boys, disgraceful drink, drink is a curse of living. And Michal demurred quietly and told as it turned out, to an enormous captive audience of this subtle and lubricious story of when he was in Marseille. And here were all the young Christian brothers listening and beaming at him as he... And eventually, whatever the story went, went around, with great detail, the punchline which he dropped in his best um, whisper came out, And did you know, Mac, that my mother was a whore? <laughs> and we all fell around the place, and the Christian brothers blessed themselves, and we all shanked off up with the boozer. I thought it was an absolute hoot. McMaster swam, and he swam, my God Almighty, he was like Otello leaping, and he was a remarkable man. Even then, he was, this was about 1951 or 52. He was a very lean figure. He had this, he, 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 he cut rather a fine figure, apart from his physique, because he was one of the first to introduce that kind of bisque-colored boxer shorts with a kind of um, contemporary coloring, purple and green. Flesh-colored. No, 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 no. There were there were kind of khaki shorts, but the, it had vertical stripes. He looked he looked like something out of uh, 
Dallas, I suppose, nowadays is the more familiar figure, but he looked the total Othello and very fit and very naturally tanned as against Michal, you see, who had the old the maquillage and uh, the, um, the Bradeen jacket. But that was the kind of thing that would happen. Um, all kinds of unexpected people would come in, nothing unexpected about McLeamore, but you don't think of McLeamore and McMaster as, you know, athletic swimmers. Not that athleticism in swimming, I think, has ever been very much uh, a part of the 40 foot. There was an old Garland, great 40 footer and uh, <coughs> legal gentleman. He was secretary of the Bar Council for a long time. But Noel uh, said that swimming is really um, a kind of an attitude of mind, and that athletic swimming in the 40 which was frowned upon. Old Duncan was um, one of the senior committee merchants, and uh, since he was in retirement for whatever he did, I think he'd been in the land commission or something else, but at any rate, he spent a great deal of his time uh, collecting in the 40-foot and so being around the place and swimming, of course, even then when I knew him, he was, he must have been well into his 70s. But there is a story of his um, coming down sometime during the war, the neutrality days, because uh, he never spoke about this, but you had a feeling that his tendency perhaps was vaguely towards disapproval of that kind of thing. And the 40-foot did tend to represent a, um, a res residue of... Uh, the old days thing. But anyway, Duncan came down one day and there had been one of these summer storms at the weekend and he said to Jack Phelan, oh, boats out there, a collection of freighters and flags and things on them. I don't know what they are, says old Jack. Uh, Farmers, they're sheltering from the storm. Don't like them, them is he? Who are they? <clears throat> I don't know, sir, says uh, Jack. So old Duncan by this time had togged off and he just leaped in quietly and he had a very dignified, as I recall, a very dignified, methodical kind of little header. Like, you know, in he went bobbed up and disappeared for about two miles and reappeared in the surge and said, yeah, foreigners all right, Spaniards, don't like to live with them. <laughs> that was it very much his style. He was one of the, the old uh, members. He'd been a good athlete. He was a good half-miler way back in in the, I suppose, post-World War I days. Very nice man, but he gave the place a kind of a, I wouldn't say a tone, it didn't need that. I think its own native ribbed rockiness and the merit of the water and the thing and the sun and the light. Very remarkable place, the 40 foot altogether. That's a very vexed question indeed. I, and I think many others, believed always that it was because the water was 40 feet deep at that point. But I went out with uh, uh, the architect Frank Foley once, and we took measurements there. And uh, I, as far as I remember, the deepest point was about 35 underneath the board, and at the foot of the steps was only about 10 feet. This was at full tide. But uh, it's said that the marine road down Leary, when built, was 40 feet wide. And there's another road in Bray, always known locally as the 40-foot road. And this seemed to mean that it was simply wider than was usual. But it could be that people came down from Don Leary along the 40-foot road, as it was known, and the name became transferred. But I investigated. I wrote to, oh dear me, some museum of military history in Great Britain to know whether the 40-foot regiment had been located in the tower at any time during those years. Well, all I could find out from them was that their 40-foot regiment had been in Dublin on three occasions during the 19th century. Now, it would be impossible to find out whether they, a little detachment of them was in the, the battery below the Martello Tower, because that was a place where they used to practice um, artillery uh, shooting, firing the shells out to sea. Well, if possibly they were there, but it seems to me more likely, oh, a local 
who uh, lived there, well-known local character, a lobster fisherman, told me that his uncle always said that the name Forty would derive from the fact that there was a raft 40 feet from the shore. This made uh, a pool, marked out a pool, which was 40 feet in all directions. So that possibly is the origin. I first swam in it in about 1935 or thereabouts, and it's substantially the same as it was. In recent years, the uh, lack of financial support on the one hand, and of course the rising costs, and a run of very bad winter storms has rather knocked places out. The raft, for instance, has gone, hasn't been replaced. And the, um, the diving boards have, uh, so far as I can recall, they've, they've just vanished. And I don't recall that they can now regularly afford to have a caretaker. But the place is rugged and natural, and it's helped along by the love and affection of a self-appointed, you might say, self-appointed group of enthusiasts who come from all parts. And uh, I think they're paying, they're, they're paying back their, um, paying back their fees, as it were. They've got, got such natural value and enjoyment out. It is, in my opinion, on, on, on a good morning tide and with the sun in the right place. It's, uh, it's the, easily the finest open sea bathing place in northern Europe. To me, and I think to most people, the great appeal is that there is water at all stages of the tide. Now, elsewhere, when I was younger, when I was a boy, we had to watch for the tide in places like Sea Point and elsewhere along the coast. But the Fortifoot always has enough water, and you don't have to delay. Now, the unhappy, uh, the women who have to swim in the harbour, you see, half the time, Sandicoff Harbour is simply a mess of seaweed and mud. And they have to wait on the tide. Now, we fortunate males can go in and there is always water. As well as that, of course, uh, there's a bit of the club spirit about the place. And we're all gregarious. We like to exchange a few words, conversation, even if it's only what way is the wind blowing or what's it like today. And the sturdy fellows that come out saying it's lukewarm, which is um, never the truth. But (laughs) let them say it by all means. In September 76, the sturdy fellows got a bit of a jolt when their preserve was invaded by women liberationists intent on demonstrating that whatever it was that men had, they should have some of it too. Flower bombs were thrown, insults exchanged, and in that barometer of Irish attitudes, the letters columns of the Irish Times, the war was bitterly continued. The demand that women should share the amenities of the 40-foot is difficult to resist in principle. In practice, however, it seems certain that men who continue to bathe naked in their presence will be charged with indecent exposure. Some bathers believe that women who take pictures at the 40-foot are in fact collecting evidence for such a charge. If that is true, the means adopted seriously compromise the principles of the women concerned. It seems to me that men have, over the years, acquired by prescription the modest civil right of bathing naked at the 40-foot. If women wish to bathe there too, they should tell us how they can do so without taking away the freedom which men enjoy at present. Yours, etc., David Green, to Vico Terrace, Dorky, County Dublin. Ahara, David Green says, September 13th, that men over the years acquired by prescription the modest civil right of bathing naked at the 40-foot. Surely he meant immodest. Berbanuk, breathe Banny Egerter, Sir, the proposed solution. Mixed nude bathing would appear to be an exciting prospect. 
It might even draw tourists from the south of France unsatisfied with monokinney bathing there. Alas, I fear we are not yet at sufficient remove from the Victorian modesty to achieve this, yet. Meanwhile, could we not devise a system based on parking rules in some countries? On even dates, females could avail of the 40-foot, and on odd dates, the males could do so. Then, perhaps, in the fullness of time, gradually integration could be tried. Yours, etc., W.J. Murphy, 120 Gaybrook Lawns, Malahide, County Dublin. Leaving aside for the moment the question of how far Professor Green and his friends themselves have a right to restrict the liberty of women to be at the bathing place, let alone swim there, an interesting point remains, an almost Victorian preoccupation with modesty. Now, if nude swimming is healthy and enjoyable, then by all means let it continue. But for both sexes, and without fear of the apparently medusan effect of the exposed sexual part... Few women in these enlightened times are likely to require smelling salts as an antidote to prolonged visual contact with the penis. Yours, Heather Clare Bowen, 9 Harlech Grove, Klonsky, Dublin 14. Sir, Sandy Cove is an extremely popular area during the summer, particularly with children, and whilst no one can object, with the exception of female liberationists, to men wishing to swim in privacy... I feel that those who wish to do so should observe a modicum of decorum. The sight of elderly naked men parading on the rocks for all to see, as has happened regularly throughout the summer, is not edifying to young children and, indeed, is open to misinterpretation. This daily spectacle, in fact, draws children out of curiosity and I feel that the whole thing is very unhealthy. Yours, etc., Patrick Crean, 10 Sandy Cove Avenue West, Sandy Cove, County Dublin. I've been consulted by a lady who wants to organise the married women of Dublin into a campaign to prevent their husbands from swimming at the 40-foot if women come in numbers to bathe there. She is alarmed at the prospect of middle-aged and elderly husbands frolicking in the nude or semi-nude with shameless hussies or straps. The words are hers, not mine, but they express another feminine viewpoint. In her letter to me, she referred to Article 41 of the Constitution, in which the state guarantees to protect the family, and she asserts that in the event of mixed bathing becoming acceptable at the 40-foot, it is the clear duty of the state to intervene and save marriages from foundering on the rocks there. I forbear from comment. Yours, etc., Mervyn Wall, Sandy Cove. All professions, clergy and doctors, working-class people, everybody... Officially, it's a men's place. It's that by tradition. But I don't know. Some of them are beginning to creep in now. I'm here every Sunday. I'm here nearly every day. But you, you take your turn on the collection. And it's always a Sunday that I do it. Yeah. And presumably the money is, to hopefully, to get a, a board. Well, not necessarily, not necessarily to get aboard. We have to make a lot of improvements. There's always damage done in the wintertime by the sea. We have to get the huts re-roofed, and we have to get concrete, the place re- more concrete where the sea does damage to the ground. How many people here would you have swimming at the height of the season? Oh, well, now, that would uh, be a very difficult question to answer. Very difficult question. A lot would depend on the summer. If you got an exceptionally good summer, 
like what we had in 1976, you'd get... It, it, the place would be swarmed all day. In the, in the season, every day, and probably twice a day sometimes, but not always in the 40-foot, other places where I'd be more convenient to. See. But the 40-foot has a, a special special significance for me because it's so so nice and it's kept clean and um, there's a man paid to look after it every, every during every week and he does disinfecting and all that sort of thing and look, where a lot of people come down they don't look after the place at all they leave all kinds of things around and this man cleans it, disinfects it and it's, it's, it's always in very good, good shape mostly you know so that, uh, that does help for the cleanliness of the place and uh, as well as the uh, the water, you always have water there. You see, whether the tide is whether it's low tide or high tide, you'll always get some water. Funny cachet attaches. I don't know why it's, it's people who swim there don't claim anything about it because it's uh, it's just the thing they do. But there are those who don't swim there who have a, a, a notion that the 40 foot is singularly colder than any other place in the world, but I'm sure that that's not true. It's said to vary. They, they used to keep, and still pretty roughly keep, a chart of the temperature, but um, somebody would say, ah, I see our man is on it, on it again. Some old jostle would come down about 5 or 6 in the morning and they'd recognise the spidery hand, 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 uh, handwriting and say, oh, well, of course, he's always a couple of degrees colder or a couple of degrees warmer. We said... He or the water, you've got to kind of make an average. Um, the coldest that I've uh, ever swum in it, I think, has been down. And I was never a winter swimmer, though. Not, not that I still am, but I've swum up to Christmas and after it. Though, funnily, I've never swum a Christmas swim in the, in the 40s. I think the, 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 the regular 40s would have rather regarded that as... A bit showy. A bit showy, a bit, yeah. But um, you'd watch it creep up. I suppose I'd swum in it when it was around about 40 or 41, which is pretty sharp. And the warmest was, I think, in about 1947, I seem to recall. It might, it might have been out there in the 50s when it got up, in fact, to 63. But we thought that that was perhaps somebody's enthusiasm. They had uh, a variety of old handheld thermometers on the string as they'd be hurled out <laughs> and hauled back up. And uh, there was nothing very scientific about it. But you knew um, people like Robin Matthews now or uh, Bill Binchy would come along and they would give you subjectively a far better uh, indication of what the water was like than your scientific uh, measurement. The snot green sea. The scrotum tightening sea. Epi oinopa pontum. Ah, Daedalus, the Greeks. I must teach you. You must read them in the original. Talata, Talata. She is our great sweet mother. Come and look. Stephen stood up and went over to the parapet. Leaning on it, he looked down on the water and on the mail boat clearing the harbour mouth of Kingstown. Our mighty mother. Right, and I used to spend the odd afternoon sitting there in the 40 foot uh, at the table. Fork out a dole for the 40 foot hole. Do you remember that? That was uh, one of the more encouraging pieces of uh, copywriting. And you took up a subscription. There was never any entry fee, you see. Uh, the entry was uh, voluntary. The, the subscription was, again, a voluntary subscription of, of those who, uh, who wanted to be members. 
And uh, for that, if you paid, I think, ten shillings or five shillings, you were given a key to the little hut. But at any rate, you would have seen men like old Duncan and Pat Conlon sitting there with his Panama hat. And whoever was available would take uh, take the, the desk, a little trestle table. I was doing this one afternoon when there was a great clatter and uh, noise and shuffling. And who entered the 40-foot but the hard bre bending Brendan Bean? Uh, I just knew him as Brendan Bean. I happily got to know him quite well afterwards, but I, I knew something of his form. And uh, he had left Beatrice uh, up on the wall looking down over the 40-foot. Not into it, mind you, because it's very chastely shrouded. But he left her looking distantly out to sea, and he clattered in. And I took not too much, but a little notice. And I turned round and I said to, uh, I think it was David Green, who said, because that I, uh, we'll have some fun now. Brent, Brendan's arrived. David Green, God rest him, used to sit there in his beard and his suntan at uh, the stone sofa to the left called Vatican City, which is a very pre-ecumenical <coughs> entitlement. At any rate, in about five minutes, there was an enormous roar. And we looked out towards Hoth, and here on the top of the board, on the top board, just above the rocks, was Brendan. And he emerged, waving to Beatrice on the platform, on the roadway. And uh, he uttered some inarticulate but clearly heartfelt benediction. Ah, you see, and we looked, and here was this enormous alabaster body and the blackish shock hair and the, the dark weathered face. And the rest of them, I mean, like one of Titian's mules or something like that. And he came up the step and up the step and we saw the full glory of the hut. There he was, absolutely stark as God's eye. And then he made another roar and ran along the board and leaped out. And here you saw, like a great St. Andrew's cross of flesh with strange convolutions, shadows, darknesses, legs, arms, the whole thing crash into the sea. I said, good luck, said I, David, I'm off. Jack Phelan, who was the caretaker, I knew there was an old Dublin Fusilier or not, but he was a really gorgeous man. And uh, he kept the place spick and span. I mean, talk about dear and dirty Dublin, the litter. Jack was, without being in any way Nazi or regimental about it, he kept the place clear. And uh, he ran dogs and he ran children. <laughs> not that he had any objection to either, but he said, oh, you shit in the 40 foot. You know, I can't have that. And there was, you may recall that uh, sometime in the late 40s there was a proposition to extend the drainage pipe which was characteristic of that foreshore along by Newtown Smith and to bring the outfall some distance out into the sea beyond the 40 foot and a lot of local and interested parties said this is not so good and I think it got to the stage where there was in fact um, if there wasn't a formal inquiry or tribunal there was invigilation by a very distinguished man in that field uh, Ian Bloomer a huge big man and he came down, and he was so pressed by people he knew, judges, barristers, bankers, who knew who knew the forty foot. So that in that in indirect way, they were a very sensible pressure group. So he said, "Look, see, I'll come down. I'll I'll spend a week or so having a look at the place." And he enlisted the aid of Jack. And he, now he says, "Jack, if you, I'm going up to Milan," she said one day. "I'm going up to the Marine. If you see anything, come up and tell me. Don't hesitate. Come up and interrupt because this is most important." And right enough at about a quarter to two, up came Jack on the bicycle, and he burst into the dining room in the old Royal Marine, where John with the white gloves was serving lunch, and there were bishops and visitors. Mr. Bloomer, Mr. Bloomer, hurry up, sir, quick, and see the shit on the 40-foot. And give Bloomer his eternal credit, he dropped everything. And he got 
huge man, about he was nearly as big as Nicky Winters, about 20 years old. He got Jack up on the bar of his own bicycle and pedalled off down to the 40 foot. As a result of which they tell us, he having given good counsel, and he was a great uh, engineer and uh, consultant, he said, no, it, the local knowledge is correct. Don't mind the tide charts and your calculations. Move the pipe out. That's, we believe, what happened. I remember Joe Tallon. He and his wife owned the Eagle Lounge in Sandy Cove. And Joe was a leather merchant in Angel Street. This is the same Joe Tallon. Who was Irish half-mile champion in his day as a swimmer, and reputed never to have used his legs, just let him trail after him. This was before the crawl was even heard of here. On one occasion, Joe, who felt some pain in his back, was a bit concerned, thought he would get free advice from the president of his rugby club, who was a sergeant Barnable at the time and who used to attend the 40-foot now and then. He said to Barnaval, by the way, he says, a, a strange ache here in the small of the back, and it's been there now for some time. What would be a good cure for that? Well, Barnaval said to him, take a heather in there, Joe, but don't say I told you. We've all got to live, you know. When you come out of the water, you feel... If I feel anyway, I think it applies to a lot of people who go there and you feel refreshed and you feel like getting up and running and jumping and doing my exercise, that's what I do. And uh, even even now, I uh, do a few, always do a few exercises after the, the swim, even before sort of a limber up, and then um, do another few exercises running around when there's, when there's space. One friend of mine I know, I met him the other day, and he is um, 77 anyway, and he's in very good form. He's been down for a swim, and I met him in the bank, and uh, he um, he asked me, where was I? Oh, I said, I was down before. I was there earlier than he was that day. He was He's uh, unemployed. At least he's retired. I'm not retired yet, although I think I should have been. <laughs> um, but he went later, and he said it was very good, as I did earlier in the day, about half past eight, I was there clubs within the club, I mean there were people who went to Farrow's and people who went to the Eagle and never the train should meet, but there was another little club now that I mention it, it was uh, it formed from uh, a subgroup of uh, not undistinguished lawyers who used to um, take the train, and there was in those days an early train about half past four or five and they'd flit out from the law library and there you'd find them ensconced by about quarter to six uh, urbane, erudite civilised, wicked, malevolent None of them was uh, what you call a swimmer, but they they all floated. Noel Garland, I mentioned, Bill Binchy, May's father, and uh, uh, Dermot Corbett. And uh, I came across this little club of theirs one day quite accidentally when the rope was up and it said, Sea Dangerous, and they had a kind of an informal committee and said, well, sure, we can have a ball of malt before tea, perhaps, but we'll go round to the, to the bell rock, round the back of the battery, to the steps. Why is that, said I? being youthful and enthusiastic and willing to hurl into this surging main and they said well this is Noel Garland I'm going around here he says because I'm only a trepid swimmer I said oh my god are you talking about he said do you not know about our society and these men on the way to the 40 foot from the law library would improve the journey on the train by um, some of them by crossword puzzlings but words 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 
they produced a society for the resuscitation of defunct or neglected positives. So that they calibrated the swimming on the fact that they were trepid swimmers. And that's a very ain observation you made. And then see some fellow struggling with the shirt tail. He's not looking very camped, is he? But consider how gruntled he'll be when he gets up to Farrell's and a ball of mort into him. Some societies like that. It's nothing to do with anything. But it was, it was somehow part of the, uh, the provenance of my growing up and living through and enjoying uh, great days in the 40-foot. And I'm sure that every, every band who went along, it, they, they went along, there was a group of teachers I used to know, and um, there were other characters who were footballers, hurlers, dog men, nags, but all sorts. Clubs within clubs, you might say. This is 1982, and I suppose we've swum throughout the year. This is the second winter that we're swimming every day, or as near to every day as the the weather will allow us swim. But basically, we we swim, you know, the children come down, and the dogs go down. And in fact, I think probably the men are quite glad that the dogs go down, because we wear clogs, and between our clogs making a clip-clop noise as we arrive down, and the dogs going down ahead of us, we give fair warning to pretty well anyone who happens to be down there who might be embarrassed by not having bathing togs on. Um, and in fact, we're, we're in and out very quickly out of the water because it, it is terribly cold. And we do we take our toweling coats and we don't get dressed again. We have our mats to stand on to keep the, the cold out. And... Um, you know, so we, we are just in and out, and that's all. Well, I suppose we've got a kind of a club. Um, I get the phone call in the morning at about quarter to seven, and then I phone Pat, and then we all start walking down the road, and then in our toweling coats, and um, we walk down to the seafront. I did write off, actually, to join the Sandy Cove Bathers Association, because, you know, I felt very strongly that as a family we used the 40-foot regularly, and that it was only fair to actually contribute to the upkeep. Um, And it is kept very well, much better than the harbour. But in fact, um, they didn't accept my cheque because it was signed Patricia Johnson, and as far as they were concerned, uh, they wrote back explaining that women couldn't be members and that I really couldn't swim there, Um, which is a bit foolish because, needless to say, we will continue to swim there, and so will all the family, and it's rather sad that we can't contribute towards the upkeep. <laughs> Definitely warmer than the The sea is so much different. The, the temperature, just, you don't get out of the sea in France feeling like this shivering all over. Look at that kid. <laughs> Many colours, he's purple and blue. And I'll tell what he thinks. Did you, enjoy, did you enjoy swimming here? Yeah. What, what do you like about it? Uh, in the water. What's nice about being in the water? You're floating. Like being in space. <laughs> Do you come here many Sundays? No, not many. Some? No, twice a month. It is undoubtedly quite the best place to swim, and anyone who regularly swims there appreciates that point and doesn't really argue with us swimming there at all. In fact, they're quite pleasant about it. <laughs> 